I think it's already enough to be human, but I feel like intersex people shouldn't live with shame and stigma about how they're born. Welcome to QHP. QHP is a podcast about queer health topics for sexual and gender minorities. My name is Sam, I use he, him pronouns, and I'm in primary care internal medicine training in New York. I'm Gabby, my pronouns are she, her, and as always, I have the same job title as Sam. And I'm Richard Green, a primary care doctor and the medical director at the Pride Health Center at Bellevue Hospital in New York City, and my pronouns are he and him. Today's episode is a deep dive into the issue of surgeries performed on non-consenting infants and children who have medical variations that fall under the intersex umbrella. At the top of this episode, you met Sean Saifa-Wall, an intersex advocate and co-founder of the Intersex Justice Project. We'll hear from Sean again soon as he talks to us about a surgery that he underwent as a young child and how that very surgery has been the catalyst for his advocacy work and passion. This episode involves the discussion of surgeries that are often considered traumatic or acts of violence by their patients. This may be difficult for some folks to listen to. Our episode's gonna focus on the ethical reasoning against these surgeries and the medical literature that does or really doesn't support them. But this will be a challenging topic for some, so we wanted to provide a content warning up front. One more caveat. Sean, who is our community voice, has chosen to share his story publicly. But the detail of someone's surgical and medical history are theirs alone to share. Amen. And then one last thing to be clear. When we talk about surgeries that violate bodily autonomy, we're talking about surgeries that are not medically necessary, meaning that they're not life or limb saving. It's also possible and even likely that some people who were born with differences of sex development had surgery to assign a sex at birth and feel perfectly fine as adults. But what we're addressing here are the ethical issues that, when abandoned, can lead to serious distress and medical complications for adults. All right, preamble done. Let's get back to Sean and let him do the talking. My name is Sean Seifer-Wall. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And I... How did I get started doing intersex advocacy? I think I got started because... I had a fundamental belief that what happened to me, what happened to my body, and what happened to my comrades and people who I care about who are also intersex is wrong. Sean rewound to the very beginning of his story. Or actually, his grandmother's story. I can't tell my own story without grounding my story in the South in Wilmington in the 19, early 1950s when my grandmother gave birth to three intersex children. It, it's definitely shaped my intersex identity because my grandmother was, you know, a single woman who raised nine children, three of whom were intersex, during Jim Crow. So I can't talk about being intersex without talking about being Black, without talking about being queer. Like many who identify as intersex, Sean remembers very clearly the day that he was told about his variation. I remember my mom told me when I was like seven or eight years old, she was like, you have testicular feminization syndrome. And I didn't know what the hell that was. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what this is, lady. The diagnosis Sean mentions is now known as androgen insensitivity syndrome or AIS. 
People with AIS don't respond to the testosterone in their body. They're insensitive to it. This means that the development of the genitals, which in part depends on testosterone signaling while in the uterus and as an infant, doesn't occur as it does in those without AIS, which means that individuals with AIS may have undescended testicles. As opposed to the doctors being really honest with my mom and saying that, well, your daughter has testes that are undescended and we can watch them to make sure that you know, to see how they progress, to see if they do become cancerous. They told her that my testes were gonads and that my gonads were cancerous and that they had to be removed immediately. And given, you know, my mom's a parent, you know, she was very concerned and she consented to surgery. And that surgery would shape my life, essentially. Sean's story is very much his own, but it does have some common threads with the stories of many other intersex advocates. One hundred percent agreed. For starters, Sean's diagnosed with a difference in sex development that is understudied. There's an anxious parent involved, and doctors are framing the surgery as a fix for what's perceived as an issue. The surgery ends up being a trauma that defines how the person engaged with medical care going forward. It's hard to know what the doctors who were advocating for Sean's surgery actually knew about AIS. In 2016, a landmark paper was published saying that there is, quote, poor evidence, end quote, that gonadectomies or the removing of the gonad surgically before puberty is actually medically warranted. And FYI, poor evidence is a doctor's way of saying we don't have the scientific knowledge to support this practice. So what we're trying to say is that medically, Sean's surgery wasn't urgent. It wasn't life-threatening in that moment. And rather than wait and see how Sean's body, gender, and sense of self developed, the surgery to remove Sean's gonads was done without his consent. Before we dive into the ethical plot points, we want to make sure that we had a technical understanding of the surgeries that are offered to parents of intersex infants and children. To do this, we spoke to I.W. Gregorio. I'm I.W. or Eileen Wong Gregorio, and I am an adult urologist I'm currently in private practice um, in southeastern Pennsylvania. We should say she is an adult urologist, meaning she does not nor has ever done these surgeries. But Dr. Gregorio didn't get to say is that she's worked closely with Interact, she's spoken at this topic on multiple conferences, and has even authored a fiction novel with a lead intersex character. Dr. Gregorio walks us through one of the common intersex traits for which surgery has historically been done in some infants, something called hypospadias. As a note, hypospadias is a different variation than the one we mentioned earlier, which is AIS. But we bring it up here because it actually touches upon lots of the ethical issues related to surgeries performed on young intersex individuals. Hypospadias is an intersex trait, not all people with hypospadias consider themselves intersex. It's a condition in which the meatus or the tip of the penis isn't at the very tip, but is somewhere alongside of the bottom side of the shaft, all potentially even as far down as at, at the scrotum or even behind the scrotum, what's called a perineal hypospadias. Hypospadias is when the urethral meatus, the tube where urine and semen exit the penis, opens on the bottom of the penis. Traditionally, we're taught in discussions to tell parents that sometimes the hypospadias can cause dribbling. Really severe forms of it can make it so that obviously sperm doesn't come out of the end of the penis. And so it can affect fertility in terms of, quote, normal penetrative sex. And sometimes it's even couched in the terms that, oh, well, he can't pee standing up, so that must be a problem. 
So some people actually use as an argument for why hypospadias surgeries should happen. The thing about these surgeries is that just like with Sean's gonadectomy, they're not medically urgent. Life and limb are not being threatened here. What is being threatened is the binary concept of what a person with a penis should and shouldn't be able to do. So here we're talking about things like having penetrative sex, peeing while standing up. This was the historical paradigm that supported doing these surgeries, that bodies that existed outside the binary understanding of genitalia were incompatible with, well, our understanding of people's bodies. This is at the heart of the controversy around intersex surgeries. The idea that these bodies with variations are, quote, pathologic, that they need to be, quote, fixed in order to conform with cultural notions of what it means to be male or female and how these cultural definitions are fundamentally tied to how we expect people to have heterosexual penetrative sex. It is worth noting that the messaging around these surgeries has kind of recently changed. Previously, a cosmetic reason was compelling enough to warrant surgery or justify it. Nowadays, most urologists will claim that surgeries like the ones performed for individuals with hypospadias are not done for solely cosmetic reasons. Instead, people cite the things we just mentioned, like being able to urinate standing up, as the primary reasoning for offering these surgeries. Long story short, it's different packaging, but the same surgeries are still being done and justified. To be clear, by most urologists, you really mean leading academic urologists at large medical centers in urban areas, or folks who have stayed involved with these conversations since they completed their training. Right, so the whole paradigm shift we just mentioned is by no means universally adopted. Plus, paradigm shift or not, there's still a lot of stigma floating around. We spoke to Professor Julie Greenberg about this since she's an expert on this exact subject. I am a retired law professor. I have been writing, teaching, and speaking on issues affecting the intersex community for more than 20 years. So I come to the issue as an academic, but also I have been involved with Interact since its inception. I've been on the board of directors of Interact since it started, and I'm currently the president of the board of Interact. The book that I authored called Intersexuality and the Law focuses on exactly that. What are the legal issues that affect the intersex community? Before Dr. Greenberg lays out the current ethical landscape, she spoke about the very important historical context that got us to today's ethical conundrums. The ethical issues starting in the 1950s all the way through the 1990s were horrifying. You know, first, the whole surgical technique was based on a lie by John Money, who said, whatever, sur whatever genitalia you surgically sculpt, that will be the child's eventual gender identity. So first, we had 30, 40 years of these surgeries being performed based on a total lie. But then second, you know, there were so many other ethical issues where doctors lied to parents, doctors told parents to lie to the children. Luckily, we got rid of those. But, you know, it was not that long ago that that was the norm. And, and now the argument by, by the people who still support surgery is, well, you know, we're fully informing and, and think techniques are so much better than they used to be. The techniques may be better, but we don't have the outcome data to prove that they're going to be better. Dr. Greenberg was very clear with me that the troubling past should be separated from the troubling present. But I'll say it again. 
In both cases, the same cultural biases and assumptions are present, although the exact reasoning and the way it's packaged and delivered has changed. And while these days doctors and surgeons no longer think it's okay to have parents lie to their children about medical conditions, they still advocate for the surgeries. The people who believe that they should be performed say, I'm acting out of the best interests of the child. And I agree that, you know, they, their motivation is the best interest of the child. And they firmly believe that a child growing up with atypical genitalia will suffer psychosocial harm, even though we don't have studies that firmly show that. And number two, they firmly believe that these surgeries have improved dramatically. So they say, well, we've got a child who may grow up traumatized. I can surgically alter them. The surgical alteration will get rid of the potential trauma. Of course we should do the surgeries. So some doctors seem to think that surgery will alleviate the trauma that comes with having variations in genitalia. But let's cut back to Sean, who says just the opposite, that surgery done to his body caused harm rather than alleviated it. And I think if, you know, if I could talk to my younger self, I would actually tell my younger self that what I know now as an adult is that what, how I was born is normal. And what happened to me, like, was it medical experimentation? And that was not normal. And I think for me as a young person, I really internalized the sort of secrecy that doctors kind of, that surround these intersex variations. And I think it was also like this really deep fear about being unlovable because of how I was born. So with that history under our belts, Professor Greenberg then walked us through the main ways that the surgeries under discussion and intersex advocacy remain an ethical issue today. Here's point number one. There's a number of reasons that ethics are, is so important to intersex advocacy. First, the potential for harm from the surgeries that are being performed on intersex infants are really significant. The risks include the fact that they may be altering the genitalia to a form that doesn't end up matching the child's eventual gender identity. The surgeries could affect reproductive capacity. There's a lot of negative physical consequences related to ability to have sexual pleasure and a need for repeat surgeries. We're talking about an area where the, the potential for harm is so great that we really need to consider, is it ethical to be performing these surgeries? And if it is ethical to be performing the surgeries, under what circumstances? All right, so that's ethical point number one the surgeries may have adverse effects on fertility or sexual pleasure. A second reason that ethics are so, is so important in this area is it's being performed on an infant who's obviously incapable of giving informed consent. Remember, informed consent means being able to comprehend the risks and benefits of a procedure and make an informed decision about what's right for you. So the question is, is this type of surgery being performed on an intersex infant? What we think of as a routine procedure like agreeing to a measles shot, or is it a procedure affecting a fundamental right like a sterilization? I would argue that we've had a number of 
international governments and international human rights organizations that have all studied the issue extensively and have all come to the conclusion that it is a human rights violation to perform these surgeries that are not medically necessary without the patient's consent. When Professor Greenberg says a number of international groups and organizations have spoken out against these types of surgeries, it's a pretty long list. Some of the highlights are the World Health Organization, the ACLU, Lambda Legal, a UN expert group made up of lawyers and physicians, another European medical consensus group, the European Commission Bioethics Committee, and then a few North American societies as well, like the American Academy of Family Physicians, Physicians for Human Rights, three former U.S. Surgeon Generals, and also the Pediatric Endocrine Society and the North American Society for Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. All right, so those are some heavy hitters. It's always tricky when a parent has to agree to something, because with few exceptions in the United States, parents must provide agreement to almost all medical interventions, HIV testing, sexually transmitted infection testing, and birth control aside, for anyone who is under the age of 18. All right, so that's another reason surgical intervention deserves increased ethical scrutiny. The person signing off on some of these operative decisions isn't the person getting the operation. The third reason ethics are so important is that outcome data for these treatments is really sparse. And so we really don't know what the outcome will be, despite the fact that we've got all the potential for significant harm. This specific body of medical literature is outdated, conflicted, understudied, and doesn't lend itself to summary easily, especially to a stressed parent who's likely not a healthcare professional. Add to that that the outcomes are measured in decades after the procedure when the infants are adults and then have already been impacted by many medical traumas and that our culture is evolving in its view of gender. To be clear, it isn't the lack of data. Professor Greenberg was clear about this. The issue is not that there's not robust data to support the procedure. The issue is whether the patient undergoing the procedure knows that there's not robust data. The risk-benefit analysis becomes very unclear when the benefit isn't data-driven and the risks are not well-documented. And there's really nothing anywhere in the data to support the notion that intersex variations cause distress or harm to those born with them. I think there are a lot of proud advocates within the intersex community who would tell you just the opposite. Maybe there's enhanced sexual pleasure. As long as we allow for variation, we might discover that all bodies have their own benefits. So to summarize this ethical point, much of the rationale for these surgeries hinges upon medical literature that, well, may be too flimsy to hold up to scrutiny. And then lastly, but certainly not least for me, there's this question of who is this surgery really benefiting? And finally, is when you look at the justifications for why these surgeries are performed, one of the justifications, and I just read a couple of recent articles that just came out, so this is still a current justification, is that the surgeries ease parental distress and promote bonding with the child. And you really have to, for me, stop and think about that. How often do we perform surgery on anybody in order to ease the distress of another person? And so is that ethically sound to subject a child to a highly invasive surgery with a high degree of risk in order to ease parental distress. Hot take. No. I really want to emphasize Professor Greenberg's last point about surgery as a psychosocial intervention. 
What she's really getting at here is that a surgery done to an infant's body is actually for the quote-unquote psychosocial benefit of the parents. And it's almost unheard of anywhere else in medicine that if something as invasive as potentially genital altering surgery could affect fertility, how someone has sex, how someone goes to the bathroom, is done potentially without even their knowledge of it happening, all for the sake of potential parental or child distress, is an odd default choice to make. Parental stress is not a medical emergency, and parental stress does not define medical necessity. This is per the consensus paper from 2016, and that paper actually advocates for a lot of non-surgical ways to address parental stress, like social workers, psychiatrists, counselors, other mental health providers. And just to be clear, they don't recommend surgery if a parent or parents are stressed. I feel like it probably goes without saying that an interdisciplinary team, meaning like a social worker and psychosocial support, is almost always an excellent thing in medicine. But I think the point is well taken here, that having a surgery done to you without consent and then having the whole thing disclosed to you can put a ton of strain, if not break, the parent-child bond. And the irony is that's exactly the opposite of the rationale being used. One of the big reasons people use parental stress to justify surgeries on intersex children and infants is fear that parents won't be able to bond with their children. You mean won't be able to bond with their children because they exist beyond the gender binary? Yes. And doesn't it sound kind of crazy when you put it that way? I know it's a very scary moment when parents give birth to a child and they want their child to be happy, healthy, and whole. And I think, you know, if I can say to any expecting parent or any parent who is lucky enough to give birth to an intersex child is that I just want to enforce that their child is normal, their child is different, and should, you know, be loved regardless. And I think parents should also be open to the fact that gender changes, you know, gender changes. And I think what intersex people and intersex variation shows us is that sex is like beautiful and, you know, sex is not fixed. Sex is fluid. One more point that I might mention. There are some surgeons who will argue that by doing surgery on infants or children, they are doing surgeries that will be done more easily and adjusted to more easily than they will as adults. But again, it relies on the assumption that variations in bodies cannot lead to normal, healthy adult function. And I mean, truly, do we even have the evidence for that, right? And so why is surgery the default as opposed to Mm -hmm. reserved for extreme cases where there's threat to life or limb? For the record, Professor Greenberg was on the same page. There are some surgeries performed on intersex infants that are medically necessary. They will save the child's life. And obviously, those surgeries are not not subject to ethical concerns. If any surgery is medically necessary, the ethical concern doesn't arise. All right. Thanks to Professor Greenberg, I think we've safely established that these surgeries are unethical like with a capital U. Let's recap the ethical points and move on. First, informed consent is possible, but complicated by the messy data landscape and the varied variations among intersex individuals. 
Two, any ethical scenario where parents are giving consent for an intervention that could potentially cause sterility or impact reproductive capacity is often legally scrutinized and may have an extra barrier, but not so for these particular interventions. There is really just no outcome data on these surgeries. And so do we even really know that there is any benefit that justifies the risks? And four, the big one and the target of multiple intersex advocacy groups and their legislative and policy efforts. Non-medically necessary surgeries violate bodily autonomy, and alleviating parental distress is not supported by data and not ethically justifiable. It's not just grossly unethical, it's also medically unprecedented. Then I think the bottom line is that stigma in and of itself shouldn't be the reason that we proceed with any medical therapy. We should be fighting the stigma and the cultural norms that propel that stigma, in addition to questioning how and when that stigma has been built into our cultural and our medical decision-making. So we've just spent a lot of time talking about the biological consequences of these surgeries. But the fallout of these surgeries is so much bigger than just biology. Here's Sean. Another reason why I would advocate against genital surgery and gonadal surgery is that it makes an assumption that intersex people will get care, will get follow-up care. And I know in my life personally, there have been moments, many moments, when I haven't had health insurance. Because in the United States, health insurance feels like a luxury. And it's only through the Affordable Care Act that I've been able to have consistent health care. If, you know, if there is any sort of follow-up, you're on your own, essentially. And I think that's what makes it so cruel. Sean's experience has been that this traumatic, invasive surgery was done, and then, well, no one really acknowledged, at least from a clinical medical perspective, that the surgery isn't the end-all, be-all of medical care for intersex people. The best practices have been said to be multidisciplinary, but it's pediatric urologists often who do the surgery, And it's not Sean's experience that the same surgeon followed him up or that he could even continue to see the same doctor because his insurance changed or he didn't have insurance for a while. So what you're basically saying is that you can have a surgeon do the original surgery, but then you as a patient might outgrow that surgeon's practice and expertise. And then you're asking someone who did not do the surgery to follow up the surgical result, which can be difficult if people are not well-trained in this. Mm. And that's a confusing clinical landscape that we actually brought to Dr. Gregorio as an adult urologist to get a sense of what is her experience as someone who doesn't do these surgeries, dealing with the reality of the surgical care follow-up. It continues to be one of the most devastating um, parts of being a urologist is seeing the, the long-term you know, harm and sort of lifelong chronicity of these prior surgeries. Um, and, and often what happens is, is that a general urologist like me is often not equipped to deal with it, which means that anyone who has a complication from these types of surgeries will inevitably need to go to a large academic center with a fellowship trained reconstructive urologist that is able to approach dealing with many of these complications because often these these reconstructive surgeries do require very aggressive reconstruction um, and treatments that that the your garden variety general urologist will not have had experience doing. The medical practices where many of these surgeries take place aren't set up to follow these patients through their adult lives, where the surgery continues to impact them. And even in the best case scenario specific to follow-up, 
those resources are rare and geographically limited. And even if folks do have the luxury of having insurance and living close to one of these fancy academic centers that Dr. Gregorio described, often intersex individuals have intense trauma associated with medical intervention, which makes this even more fraught. Right. And just to bring it back, these issues of access and the follow-up landscape, all of these add fodder to the argument that these surgeries are unethical. As if we needed more to critique, these follow-up appointments can also be times when the medical system imposes damaging and traumatic assumptions of gender onto individuals with intersex variations. Exactly. Like what happened to Sean when he was prescribed hormone therapy after his gonad removal. After surgery... I was put on feminizing hormones like estrogen and progesterone. And I remember feeling kind of really dysphoric. You know, I, I definitely felt like a body dysphoria because, you know, I was very I was very content with how my body was developing before I was castrated. But once I was castrated, like my body started to develop in a super feminine way. And I think that contributed to a lot of body dysphoria. And it was very traumatizing for me. Here's a subtle medical point. Sean didn't need to be put on estrogen. When your gonads are removed, your body depends on hormones given through pill or injection in order to have a healthy, well-functioning body. But it doesn't matter much whether these hormones are masculinizing or feminizing as long as enough hormone is present to protect your bones. And even when Sean eventually got to a hormone regimen that worked for him, he still had to work to be his own advocate within patient health scenarios. We've talked about this a lot in our first episode on the intersex community, but it really can't be discussed enough. I think... When I first started taking testosterone, I don't think providers knew what to do. But I think for me, I think I've been very fortunate since starting my testosterone journey that I've encountered providers who are willing to listen to me and willing to sort of sort of follow my lead. Providers who listen is great, but Sean should be working with his physician, not working for them. And this also speaks to the need for physicians and healthcare providers to be humble and acknowledge what is known and not known. Something that physicians are famously terrible at. Absolutely. And it's absolutely okay for physicians not to know everything. And it's okay for us to learn from our patients. But we need to be open to learning more about our gaps from the literature and other providers and community members so that we can provide our patients with the best care for them as individuals and not rely on them to bring us the information. Seeing our patients as individuals, letting their goals and desires take the lead. Where have I heard that before? Oh, right. Literally any time we talk about queer health. I think in this moment that I feel so protective and so allied with the trans community. Because I feel that what intersex people are fighting for, intersex activists are fighting for, is bodily autonomy and sovereignty. And it's interesting because trans people are also fighting for bodily autonomy. You know, trans people are fighting for the right to do with their bodies what they want, you know? And I think trans people should be supported in that, you know? And like what I always said and believe is this like, you know, trans people have to fight for surgeries that they do want and intersex people get surgeries that we don't want. Now for a little bit of a real world news update. 
intersex advocates who have been criticizing surgeries they don't want have been making progress. While we were producing this episode, some of Sean's advocacy came to fruition. The Intersex Justice Project and Interact celebrated the announcement from Lurie's Hospital in Chicago, associated with Northwestern University, that was a historic moment in intersex advocacy. Absolutely. Lurie issued a formal apology, the first from any medical center in the United States, for performing surgeries. With some footnotes, it said it would no longer allow these surgeries. This is a huge deal, but this apology isn't any sort of legal claim, and there's a lot more work to be done. But it's a big step towards changing the culture of how we approach surgical interventions. And as Sean points out, it challenges the very power dynamics that medicine has historically relied on. As a society, we place a lot of faith in medical providers. I think what intersex activists doing, I think what makes our movement really powerful is that we're demanding accountability from an institution that has been above reproach. Before Sean has the last word, we want to go back and reiterate one last time the ethical problems that come with surgeries done to non-consenting intersex bodies. Mainly that there is no ethical precedent to support doing surgeries to non-consenting minors for the psychosocial, meaning emotional, treatment of stress for the parents that's a byproduct of cultural assumptions. That stress may be real, but surgery is not the solution. That's the conclusion of intersex activists, ethicists, and a slew of international bodies and advocacy organizations, which we will link to in our show notes. We also spent some time talking about the long-term harms of surgery, that there are real healthcare consequences to these invasive procedures, and that folks who get them often lack robust follow-up and often require additional medical care on top of the original surgery. Here's Sean with the last word. If I can say anything else, I just want people to know that you're not alone. Like, I think what creates an environment for these surgeries to happen is the feeling of being alone. And although it may feel scary and overwhelming, like, you know, you're not alone. QHP is a power-sharing project that puts community stories in conversation with health expertise to expand autonomy for sexual and gender minorities. We would like to thank our guests, Sean Seifer-Wall, Dr. I.W. Gregorio, and Professor Julie Greenberg. We would also like to give a big shout out to Interact and Hans Lindell, who served as this episode's community reviewer. If you like what you heard, consider joining us online. We have a website, www.queerhealthpod.com, and we have show notes, a bunch of other great resources, and more. You can also reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram, where our handles are at QueerHealthPod. You can let us know what queer health questions you want us to bring to the experts on your behalf, or you can just check out our graphics. And thank you to Lonnie Ginsberg for composing our theme music. Opinions in this podcast are our own and do not necessarily represent the opinions of any of our affiliated institutions. And even though we're doctors, please don't use this podcast as medical advice. But instead, please consult with your own healthcare provider.